0: Father, we're so grateful that we can gather together tonight to consider the Incarnation, to thank you for it, to sing praises unto you. For you are worthy. It is something, Father, that you planned from before the foundation of the world. We read, Father, in Titus chapter 1, that you made Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which you, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested, even your word. In the proclamation with which Paul, and now we are entrusted according to your commandment. Long ages ago, Father, in eternity past, in council with yourself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Father, you decreed that you would bring about redemption eternal life and you have done that Father and this, your son the second person of the Godhead took it upon himself to come into the world to save us we are so grateful Father help us to understand a little bit more tonight than perhaps we ever have before what it means that Grace has appeared in the person of Jesus. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the incarnate one, the Lord and the Savior. Amen. Amen. I don't have to tell you life in this fallen world is often difficult. But these last two years have been extraordinary. Certain things that we know to be true intellectually we have experienced to be true in the midst of all that we have been through. We have seen, for instance, the reality that the spirit of this age is alive and well and would like nothing more than to take the place of the spirit of God within his people. As a result, we can often feel worn out because the battle never stops The world never stops. There is never a ceasefire from the onslaught of the enemy. But even in this, the Lord is gracious. He provides us with respite from the battle. This is what the Lord's Day is intended to provide for us. The Lord's Day is intended to be a time when we can come apart from the battle, a time when we can gather together and recharge and Be trained, a time to repair our armor and get ready to go back and rejoin the fight. That's why it's such a shame that so many of God's people take the Lord's Day so lightly. It is a gift of God's grace to His people. And although the celebration of the incarnation is nowhere commanded in Scripture, it is another one of those times when we can kind of come away and rest if we celebrate it as we should. Of course, if we're not careful, if we don't guard ourselves, Christmas can be used very effectively by the enemy. If we allow it, the enemy can use what should be a glorious celebration of the coming of God into the world to accomplish redemption as an opportunity to spread discord and strife. And to turn our eyes to things other than Jesus. But it should be and it can be an opportunity to take refuge from the spirit of the age and to find joy and peace in the spirit of God. It's good for us to, as Paul says in uh, Ephesians, redeem the time in this way. As we pause and meditate upon God's greatest gift, the advent of his son who humbled himself, taking on humanity, coming into this world in order to die. Of course, we also know that he's going to come again in great glory to judge the spirit of this age. This is... I fear where so many miss the mark. Over the years, we've heard constant cries about the battle for Christmas, the need to put Christ back in Christmas. And I've never really understood that. Somewhere along the line, people have gotten the idea that the world wants to celebrate the coming of Christ into the world. And that's just bizarre to me. It is what comes, I suppose, from Remembering what it was like to live in a nominally Christian culture. But that was never the norm. It would be as if the Christians in the early church expected the worshipers of the goddess Diana to celebrate Christmas, to celebrate the birth of Christ, the incarnation. For far too many, Christmas is not a respite from battle. It's just another battlefield, and I just don't understand the fight. I'm going to worship Christ and thank the Father for sending his Son into the world. That's what I do at Christmas, because I belong to him. I am his, and he is mine. Why would I want to fight with the world as if I'm trying to get them to do something that they cannot possibly do? Because in order to worship God and thank Him for the incarnation, one must belong to Him. One must have a renewed heart. I'm not concerned with putting Christ back in Christmas. I'm concerned about making sure Christ is in me and that Christ in me is making me like Him. Brothers and sisters, the world cannot sing, Oh, come, let us adore him. Because they don't know him. They have not experienced his grace. When they do, then they will no longer be of the world. They will be his. And he will cause them to adore him. So tonight, I just want to remind us About why we adore our Savior. And the reason we adore our Savior is because of reasons that the world doesn't know anything about and cannot understand and does not believe. We adore our Savior because of Christmas grace. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2, please. Titus chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 11 through 14 just for a few minutes this evening. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Paul here is proclaiming the grace of the coming of Christ into the world. The grace of the first advent. Now some of us who have been studying the pastoral epistles together on Tuesday mornings have seen how here in Titus chapter 2, Paul is moving from the various duties of Christian men and women and servants to the reason why each of us should be fulfilling those duties, depending upon which category we fall into. Uh, Beginning with uh, chapter 2 verse 1, Paul says to Titus, as for you, and he's contrasting this with false teachers that he had just been speaking about. As for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then he addresses older men and older women and younger women and younger men and bond slaves. And speaks to each of those categories about how we live obedient lives in service to Jesus Christ, no matter who we are. There are specific and distinctive roles that each of us have, certain aspects of godliness that we are to focus on, Some are true, of course, for everybody, and some are distinctive in regard to age or gender. And now, as we come through that to verse 11 and the end of the chapter, Paul begins to give us a reason for why we should be obedient to Christ in these ways. And he tells us that Christians of all kinds are to live in obedience to Jesus for a particular reason. And the reason is given there in verse 11. You see it there because of the word for that opens the sentence. For or because the grace of God has appeared. Paul says we are to live in obedience to the Savior because of Christmas grace. For the grace of God has appeared. And he's speaking about Jesus. It's really quite an amazing thing. He's essentially calling Jesus grace. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. I I, I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. Grace, as Paul is describing it, is not a principle. It's not a theological concept. Grace is a person. Grace is Jesus. But that brings us to an interesting question. When he says the grace of God has appeared, is he saying that there was no grace before Jesus appeared? Was there no grace in the Old Testament as the old covenant saints of God looked forward to the advent of the Messiah? We know from the story of Scripture that God did not appear that, that, that God actually did appear. We just read it in Genesis chapter 3. He appeared to our first parents after their sin. And he appeared in grace, promising them a savior. He appeared in grace to Noah and to his family. We know he appeared in grace to Abraham and to Joseph and to Moses To Israel, to the judges, to the kings, the list goes on and on. So why does Paul speak this way? He does so because the grace of the first Advent, Christmas grace, is the climactic grace. There's something about this appearance of grace that Paul's talking about that makes it unique and unlike anything that came before it. That word that he uses here in verse 11, appeared, for the grace of God appeared, that comes into English as the word epiphany. It's used in ancient literature to describe the sun. You see its glow appear first, and then you see its rays, and then finally you see it in all the fullness of its glory the grace of God that appeared like the glow and the rays of the sun appeared in the animal skins to Adam and Eve in the ark to Noah and his family in calling Abram out of an idolatrous family to a new land in saving Joseph from the wrath of his brothers and from the wrath of Pharaoh in redeeming the firstborn of Israel in the Passover lamb in the crossing of the Red Sea, in the giving of the law, in the repentance of David, in the return of Israel from exile. But now that grace, Paul says, has been embodied. That grace has become flesh. It has appeared in the person of Jesus, the eternal Son of God. But I want you to see something else here in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. See, Christmas grace is personified. It appeared in the person of Jesus, but Christmas grace is also a universal grace. The grace of God that has appeared in the person of the Son of God in human flesh brings salvation to all men. Now, we need to understand the context here. The context I just described earlier, Paul has been going through, and he's looking at the church, and he's dividing the church up into different groups to speak about different kinds of obedience and different kinds of responsibilities, and he's speaking about all kinds of people who have come to faith in Christ and therefore have come into the church. He's speaking to older men and older women and younger women and younger men and and bond slaves. All kinds and classes of human beings, in other words. Elsewhere, he speaks of... The differences between free and slave, male and female, Jew and Gentile. And he says, spiritually speaking, no matter what the world sees as those differences, spiritually, once you come to faith in Christ, once you come into the church, there is no difference. Those differences are set aside. But the point is that no matter what kind of category you fit into, the grace of God comes to people like you. It's fascinating how Paul speaks in the same breath in verse 11 as, uh, of all men. And then he goes on to say in verse 14 that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And so this Christmas grace is personified and this Christmas grace is universal. It it applies to every kind of person in the world. But Paul also tells us that Christmas grace is sanctifying grace. This amazing grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ is a grace which does not leave people as it finds them. It changes them. It sanctifies them. And this brings us back again to the context of the reason why Paul uses the word for there in verse 11. Note how in verse 12, grace acts. Grace does something. Grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. How does this act of instruction function in the lives of those who believe in this Christmas grace? Paul tells us. We're denying something. And we're pursuing something. We're denying ungodliness and worldly desires. And we're pursuing lives in which we live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age which implies this isn't the only age there is this present age but there is an age to come in the age to come these things won't be a concern we won't need to be instructed in these things in the age to come But we're not in the age to come yet. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But we're not there yet. And so we need to have God apply this grace to us in such a way that it is at work in us. That we are instructed to live lives that reflect the character of God and honor him. God does this act of instruction because he is the one who is doing the redeeming from every lawless deed. He's the one who's doing the purifying. He is the one who is making us zealous for good works. The last phrase of verse 14. The advent of the Son makes us grateful for grace, but more than that, zealous to do good works as the outworking of our gratitude. Paul also proclaims that the glory of God is going to be revealed in another appearing. Look at verse 13 we're not only being instructed to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, but also to look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. If you've ever heard someone make the claim that the Bible never refers to Jesus as God, Take them here. It's pretty clear. In verse 11, the first advent of Christ is spoken of as Jesus appearing. Grace in the person of Christ has appeared. In verse 13, that same word is used for the second advent of Jesus. Our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, is our blessed hope, and He is going to appear. He is going to return in glory. It's such a contrast, isn't it? Grace and glory. Jesus came to be judged for our sin. That's grace. When he comes again, it will be to judge sinners. That's glory. He came as a lamb. He's coming back as a lion. He came in humility the first time. He's going to come in honor the second time. The first time hidden away in a manger. But when he comes again, every eye will see him. And every knee is going to bow. And everyone will declare him to be lord. And it is for this glory that we are called in this age between the two advents to wait, to look. We're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice that as we look back to the first advent, we are to be renouncing ungodliness renouncing worldly desires, living sensible, that means self-controlled lives, upright, godly lives, being zealous for good works. So in that sense, we are active. But as we long for his coming, we're looking. We're waiting. I hope you're looking. I hope you're waiting for the coming of Christ in glory. The idea here is that we are to be looking expectantly, anxiously. I know, you know, it's the most wonderful time of the year. That's what they tell me. But wouldn't you rather Jesus come? As much as we're looking forward to tomorrow and you know, gifts and family and great food, Wouldn't it be better if Jesus would come? Even looking and waiting, though it sounds like something passive, actually takes action. You have to intentionally focus your heart to wait for Jesus. Because at every moment, the world is trying to entice you to look for other things. When we need to be looking for Jesus. So while feeling consumed by the age, brothers and sisters, be consumed with faith in what Jesus has already done for you in his first advent. Be consumed with hope as you long for the age to come when he appears a second time to take you and all of his people into the fullness of. Of his kingdom. When he takes this world, this present age, and remakes it and ushers us in to the age to come. That will be glory. And all of that has its seed in Bethlehem, in the manger. Father, thank you. We are so grateful, Father, and we do. We pray with the Apostle John. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Oh, Father, we desire Jesus to come. We desire to be with him. We desire all of the struggles and the trials and the suffering of this world to end. We look forward to that day when sin will no longer be an issue when we will not have to be instructed to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age because we won't be in the present age and none of those things will be a problem. Sin will be done away with and the enemy will have been judged. Oh, Father, this Christmas, may we rejoice in Christmas grace. May we rejoice in Jesus, even as we anxiously look for his coming. It is in his name that we ask it. Amen. Amen. Bless you. Merry Christmas.